Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 32, and we're reviewing The Promised Neverland Season 2. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. So, The Promised Neverland Season 2. Oh boy. <laughs> it's, uh... It's a lot to to take in, a lot to uh, accept that this is the reality that we're faced with, with this season two. <laughs> you know, here at Strictly Anime, we always talk about expectations, <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this show blew away my expectations, right? Well, it didn't. It actually threw them away. <laughs> it didn't it... subvert your expectations? <laughs> no, it just took them and chucked them out the window. What a waste of time. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, I We assume that if you're listening to this podcast episode, you've already watched most, if not all, of season two of Promise Neverland. And hopefully you kind of understand the sentiment here that, man, this season sucked. Like, really bad, it sucked. Like the only other thing that I can think of that was this disappointing was like obviously Game of Thrones. It was just such a waste of time and world building. And not to say we didn't get like we got a lot of, you know, rich lore and exposition in this season and it kind of fires at you from the get-go, which is nice cuz you know, it doesn't take like a very slow pace. But ultimately it just leads to nothing so it's like a means to no end yep basically and you know what I, I think the approach that we'll take for this review is a light-hearted roast i think we're just gonna end up roasting the shit out of the season but let's do it from you know kind of a i don't know like a, a light-hearted perspective let's try to just make the best of the situation that we were given and let's just talk about this dumpster fire. But before we do that, I do want to ask this question. So we didn't get to review season one of Promise Neverland on this podcast because we watched it before we launched Strictly Anime. So I want to get um, your thoughts and I'll share my thoughts as well on season one. And then I guess high level how it compares to season two or rather how season two compares to season one. I thought season one was fantastic. Um, it had a premise that was very mysterious and almost like Attack on Titan, where you have these characters who are stuck in this in this world that doesn't seem like everything doesn't seem as it truly is. Um, and then you know it's it's basically them trying to plot their way out of the the orphanage for all of season one, but the intensity of each episode was so great and it left very very strong cliffhangers that even though this i guess escape plan takes place over 11 episodes it doesn't feel like it dragged out and then when you get to the escape the, plan for season one you're talking about yeah, right? yeah okay. for season one and then you get to the season finale where they actually do escape and it's it's just so well executed and you know it makes you want more and I know we watched this, I think, last year. And I don't know how long people have been waiting for season two. I feel like we didn't have to wait too long. But, you know, it left you excited to see the the journey that these children will go on and whether or not it's going to be a perilous one. But, you know, it, you get to season two and it turns out that and all the expectations that you had just weren't there. 
<laughs> they were chalked out the window, as you, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. What, what did you think of so, season one? Similar. Um, I would say when watching season two, I didn't even feel like I was watching the same show as season one. Like they felt mm-hmm. drastically different. Um, and that, that can be a good thing um, when you want the plot to progress pretty quickly. But in this case, it was certainly a bad thing because it's like they forgot all of the great things that they did in season one that made it such a huge, a huge success. So I... I was obsessed with season one. I, I think I introduced the show to you. I was like, you have to watch this anime. Yeah, you're being a hype man. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I was right. No, no, yeah, you you were. You totally got sucked into it. And and honestly, it's it's a it's a fantastic season. Just the the dread that you feel the entire time you're going through this very um very long but not drawn out you know, season, as you said earlier, like it it was just, it was so great. It had you on the edge of your seat the entire time. The pacing was phenomenal. The, the plot twists were, were meaningful and impactful to the story. The characters were so endearing or terrifying, depending on if you're talking about the kids or about, you know, uh, mama or or Miss Crone or something like that. Um, and yeah, just everything about it worked so well. And the crazy part is they never left the house. They never left Grace Field um and and you never really got any world building like you got little breadcrumbs of what was going on outside of this this farm but it works like you didn't need to have any more than what was going on in this this you know tiny world um and and it just it all came together so well like that was enough for it to be a captivating story because the way they kind of trickled the information down made you just so intrigued about what was going on what was going to happen next how they're going to escape how they're going to survive and yeah, it was just, I don't know, it was, it was a great watch. And then season two, I don't even know. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into this for sure. Um, but I do want to call out just a couple of quick things um, before we dive into the synopsis. First off, and I'm just going to come right out of the gate with it. I think everyone knew that Norman was still alive. Like, I, I think we all mm-hmm. called that. Like, that was super obvious. Um, and I think that was one of the, so Norman's, um, Norman's assumed death in season one was probably one of the most powerful moments in the show because you would just assume that those three main characters, Emma, Norman, and Ray, were going to make it beyond the wall. Like they were all going to survive so they could help the kids. But then out of nowhere, they they send Norman out. And you're like, holy shit. You could still kind of tell though that like he was probably going to survive. Like, I don't know. There's Again, in anime, if you don't see someone die, they're probably still alive somehow. But yeah, the way they framed, I kind of remember his his final scene in episode or in season one. And the way they framed it was like he had this shocked look on his face, but then it just cuts. Like there's it leaves a lot of ambiguity as to what had happened to Norman. So yeah, there was a strong likelihood that he was going to come back in season two. Yeah, and I think what what made it kind of frustrating with season two is that yeah, we all knew he was going to come back, but the way he was revealed was just I don't know so typical so expected um and again like we knew it was going to happen right but the way things were were presented in season one the way plot twists happened in season one were pretty unexpected they were um very unique and again that that kind of added to that intrigue but norman's reveal as as well as other things in season two were just so i don't know you could call that shit a mile away like it was very lazy writing compared to season one and that's just something that irked me the most about this season yeah it was it was a very cliched way for him to come back into the show um i still enjoyed it. i remember i still got chills up my spine 
chills down my spine when I saw him appear. Um, but I think what I didn't like about Norman this season is just his change in personality. And he seems like more world weary, more cynical up until like Emma kind of snaps him out of it. It was just very different from the Norman that we saw in season one, who was like, you know, more optimistic. And I get why, like, as we'll talk about it, like he had to undergo all these torturous experiments on him and get this kind of, again, cynical worldview. But yeah, it was just a weird way to introduce him, almost like a genocidal maniac um, yeah. in the beginning. And then he, again, he, he has an about face, which I don't explain how much that kind of pissed me off <laughs> later on. But yeah, like Norman's just another downfall with with this season and with the series overall and the other thing or i guess a couple things that i wanted to mention are kind of grouped together and that's just like all of the unanswered questions left from this season um for example like they never really explained how or why there's so much advanced technology among the demons um, and the humans living in the demon world when the two worlds are supposed to be completely shut off from each other like it seems like a lot of the human world has trickled into the demon world but it's like weren't they like wasn't it a hard line in the sand? Like, they don't have any interaction. That was my understanding anyway. Um, and then, you know, like, Sonju saying that he wants to eat all the humans, um, even though he says he doesn't to their face, but he only wants to do it when they're able to breed in the wild. And, like, so whatever happened with that? Because then at the when he came back, to, you know, towards the end of the season, it was like none of that existed. He posed no threat to them. It's like, why even tell us that at that point? You know what I mean? And I think a lot of these things would be answered in the manga or are answered in the manga i assume but as anime only people it's just like i, I don't want to have to go read the manga to understand what's happening and fine if if you can't answer every single question but like don't bring it up so heavily in the show if you don't intend to give us an answer to it and technically and this is what we'll talk about towards the end of the synopsis i'm sure but technically they did finish the show but because of the way it was ended we still didn't get the answers to those questions I think it's part of it is because I believe like the way that anime are produced, it's almost like on the daily. So probably back when they had that episode where Sanju mentions him wanting to eat these kids at the right time, I think they were thinking we'll probably explore this in like a future season. But obviously based on the feedback from from the public, that's not going to happen. And like you said, the, the show technically ended. Um but yeah, that just that that and the other questions just reminded me so much of like this is like giving me like traumatic flashbacks to, to Game of Thrones and all of the <laughs> you know all the world building in that and all the theories that were floating out there that different fans and and publications had and then it just all came to naught. But you know, enough with the roasting for now. Let's just go for ahead. now for like five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> yeah, let's. Let's go ahead and, and muster up some strength and get through our synopsis and analysis for Promised Neverland Season 2. The Promised Neverland Season 2 is a 2020 anime adaptation of the manga series of the same title by Kayu Shirai, animated by Cloverworks and directed by Mamoru Kanbei. The series follows a group of orphan children in their plan to escape from their orphanage and survive in the outside world after learning of the dark truth behind their existence and the purpose of the orphanage. Fun fact, Kayu Shirai is just a pen name. The real name of the author is unknown, which is probably a good thing knowing that this season is out because I'm sure 
they don't want to be seen in public and have to face that scrutiny of Oof. answering for this <laughs> this series' questions. Starting off with episode one, Emma, Ray, and the Gracefield gang wander outside the confines of their former stead in a forest with some weird-looking Pokemon using a cryptic textbook and pen in the hopes of locating a person named William Minerva that could possibly help them out. At night, the group scatters after encountering a bastard son of Aragog the Spider, and Ray offers to distract the beast as bait. He is nearly captured by some demons in pursuit, but is saved by a hooded figure on horseback. Meanwhile, as Emma leads the rest of the group to safety, she faints because her ear is bleeding or some shit, but they all end up being rescued and sheltered by a female demon? And I think I'm going to take this first episode to talk about probably the only positives of this show, which are the OP and the ED. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, not of the show, but of the season in particular. Yes. Um. So the OP is titled Identity, performed by Kiro Akiyama. Um, it's not as epic sounding as Overworld's first theme in the... Um, in the first season fire yeah <laughs> yeah there's no there's no sudden chant or of anything in the song but i dig it um you know i obviously i put it on my anime spotify playlist thinking that this would be an epic song to go with an epic season <laughs> well the like first part is an epic song <laughs> yes it's an epic song epic season not so much um and what's interesting about the OP itself um, with the visuals, I noticed that it kind of constantly evolves and adds more characters as the season drags on. Because <laughs> um, in the beginning, it's just it's just the children that appear. Um, and then as we're introduced to, or we are reintroduced to Norman and we see his gang, they, they are included with the group. Um, there's shots of them in the fields. And there's that one shot of them all like punching at the camera, if you remember that. Also, there are like motifs of clocks and red flowers, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I think um, while the first season OP and ED were better, um, these are still really good um, songs. And I think the the OPs fit very well with each of the seasons. So the the song by Overworld for the first season has more of that like intensity more of that mysterious feel to it, which I think matches that season pretty well. And then this one almost feels a little more hopeful, a little more adventurous, um, which I think fits the second season very well. Um, the ending is super mellow, super chill, um, which I think is weird just because the season overall is pretty intense. But I think it's still a nice song. I enjoy both of them, and I agree. They're probably the the best thing about season two. Yeah, the ED is kind of like lo-fi beats to run from demons, too. That's what <laughs> I wrote in my notes as I first listened to it. Uh, the song is called Magic by Myuk. Um, Spotify now has the full version. I think while the show was still going, it just had the TV size. So if you're interested, um, again, Magic by Myuk, the full version is on Spotify for those who have that platform. Um, Visuals-wise... It's just focusing on Mujika and Sanju's travels. And there is a glimpse, I think, of Norman, which, again, prompted the theories of whether or not he was still alive. And obviously, we know that he is, but I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, the only note I had for episode one was, um, what the fuck is happening? That's all I wrote. I was, like, so confused, but in a good way. Like, I, I was hopeful going into this first episode because 
it's not what I expected for season two. Um, I thought they'd be on like regular Earth and maybe like the demons invaded or something. But it's kind of the world building took a different path than I I had anticipated. So I was I was interested by this point. Episode one had me drawn in. I was like, OK, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but you've got my attention. I kind of liked that it almost started right where the previous season left off. Because um, I think if it had done a time jump, we wouldn't have gotten kind of like the stakes of them trying to survive in this world if they were already established. Um, so to see them all in the forest still kind of wondering what they need to do to survive was was interesting. Well, I have to disagree there. I was actually disappointed that they were kind of already like mid-journey. I actually wanted to see them the second they got down from that wall, figuring out like what mm. the fuck do we do now? Where are we? What is this place? We've never been in a fucking forest like this before. Like, I wanted to see all of that. I wanted to see them, like, their first encounter with a demon, right? Or, um, you know, the, their first night sleeping. Like, can they fucking start a fire and stuff? And how are they going to catch food? Like, I wanted to see all of that. I wanted to see the culture shock of being beyond the wall. Um, but we didn't get that. So I was actually disappointed that there was a slight, even if it was just a couple of days, worth of a time skip like i wanted to see immediately after like what happened because it, it felt like they were already kind of exposed to the demons by this first episode like yeah. they kind of knew what to do they weren't entirely in shock but man i kind of wanted to see that like that that would be that would be cool to because you spent this entire season um going from literally the beginning of them discovering the truth about grace field um to getting to the wall finally and then you don't really get to see what happens immediately after yeah, that's true. You never really get their initial reaction to seeing a demon for the first time. I mean, in this episode, they do battle. Or not battle, but they run away from that spider creature. Um, and like, The CGI spider creature? Yeah, <laughs> or whatever the fuck it was supposed to look like. Um, but then you'll see in, like, in later episodes, they do get exposed to the demons, but it's almost a very muted response. Um, kind of alluding to what you said earlier that they are already familiar with seeing them in the world but i get yeah like you said they don't get that we don't get to see their initial culture shock to it um yeah the only other thing i have with this episode is that the children using the adventures of yugo book gave me similar vibes to the tales of beetle the bard from harry potter and how they use this book to kind of guide them on their journey and it's almost like they're using it as a real time map it's not just like a storybook that was just created out of thin air so i thought that was cool but you know still thinking of everything in the broader perspective of the end it's like this doesn't matter <laughs> and i remember thinking that i was writing as i was writing all these synopses is like i'm writing this for no goddamn reason hey it's not for no reason it's so that we can roast this shit so we can vent about it and we can talk about it yeah because it needs to be talked about <laughs> Moving on to episode two, the Gracefield gang learns that the female demon Mujika and her right-hand man Sanju are rogue demons who do not eat humans for breakfast. Sanju recounts the tale of how humans and demons resolved a lengthy war thousands of years ago by creating separate worlds and by allowing demons to farm human offerings for their own consumption. There is apparently no chance to cross between worlds, but using anime logic, I'm pretty fucking sure they'll figure it out by the end of the season. The demonic duo then train the gang in various survival skills, and Emma trains separately with Sanju in ritualistically hunting animals using the blood-sucking Gupna plant. Though severely traumatized by the experience, Emma returns to the cave and assures the other kids that she's okay. 
You're not okay, Emma, and neither is this show. <laughs> so, um, yeah, episode two, I, I really enjoyed the the tale that Sonju tells the kids. It's kind of interesting that this is the way things have been for a thousand years because they all assumed that it was fairly recent, um, but it was it's not. And I think. Um, I think that really kind of sets in with the kids that they're like, oh, shit, there's going to be a lot of stuff to undo if it's been this way for for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it odd that the humans gave demons the offering of some humans to farm. But like, did the demons give them anything in return among their agreement? I assume safety from not being they attacked gave them by demons. freedom. Yeah, but it's just kind of like weird. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's another open-ended question. Uh, I did like... The kind of the start of Emma's next arc and like her her furthering her character development when she kind of has to kill stuff in order to survive because it's very much against her nature but that's all kind of short-lived because I mean in a good way because as we see her progress through the season she sticks to her guns and says like no we're gonna save everyone including the demons um so it's just I don't know it's just weird that they introduce this concept of her like killing in order to survive but then like doesn't go anywhere else with it because he doesn't really kill anyone else i mean it it, yeah when we first watched this it seemed like emma was changed after that initial kill but i think it's more so in the sense that she realizes you know the heaviness and the toll that it takes in killing another being even if it's just for food so it kind of makes sense that you know later on she has this resolve to, to to save the kids and you know save i guess humanity on a broader level by by not approaching this path of violence yeah and i guess as i think about it a little bit more hearing you kind of talk through that maybe the intent um although again a lot of the writing doesn't quite hit home maybe the intent is for emma to realize that sometimes you have to kill out of necessity in order to survive and then she ties that back to the demons because as we learn later um they need to eat humans in order to not revert so it's literally a an act of survival so maybe she kind of you know brings that full circle and says oh shit i had to do this in order to survive so now i understand that they're doing it just to survive so maybe they're not as evil as i thought they were but then it doesn't fucking matter because we learn that mujica has magic blood that I know. does everything <laughs> it's like how convenient yeah one thing i liked about this episode going back to sanju's tale is i appreciated that the show didn't waste any time in revealing the truth of the world only two episodes into the second season which is again vastly different from you know for those of you who had would watch the attack on titan it took us almost three seasons to get like the bigger picture of what was happening um and again this was kind of going into it with the expectation that there would be another season following the second season that kind of explores an even bigger story of the world whereas this is this season kind of just establishes what's been going on. Um, so yeah, even though, again, that amounted to nothing in the end, it was still something that I appreciated. There was one moment in particular in episode two, and this is the last thing I'll say about this episode, um, that started to give me red flags about the writing, and that's the fact that we had seen demons and these unique creatures kind of the whole way through these first two episodes, but then when they leave the tunnels um, and they're back out in the forest, the animals and the insects were very much like what you'd see on earth versus the ones that we had seen previously which again were were very like different and demon-like and then after that it like all, all forest shots went back to that where it was like more of like an alien planet or something or had like these alien type of creatures so you only got i i think anyway 
in the entire season this one moment where they leave the tunnels and you see it and it feels more like actual earth and then everything else is all like demon-like and i'm like what the fuck like was that a mistake did they intend to do that it was very odd to me but that again that was like the moment that i started to kind of think like why is this inconsistent what's going on here Mm -hmm. i never i never noticed that i think the other thing was i think they mentioned that the current earth year is 2046 that kind of took me out of it too um because you know i i figured this takes place in its own like fantasy world and so to think that this is only 20 years from from our present day it's like oh man are we gonna find demons fighting against humans in our lifetime is this what's gonna happen (laughs) let's hope not (laughs) Moving on to episode three, the Gracefield gang resumes their search for William Minerva, and Mujica gives Emma an amulet as a parting gift. Sanju wards off patrolling demon search parties, but we learn that he plans to eat the kid's offspring in the future. Too bad this doesn't fucking matter by the end of the show. The gang arrives at Minerva's last known coordinates, which houses a secret underground complex with all the accommodations and amenities they need, as well as a radio to listen in on transmissions from the house farms an automatic five-star Airbnb rating for the host, if you ask me. But, of course, not all is rainbows and butterflies, as a shared bedroom has the word help etched on its walls, and Emma answers a telephone from William Minerva himself. Um, so there was just one thing that, like, really was disappointing to me in terms of the character writing in this episode, and that's that help warning sign in the one bedroom. So, like, I'm surprised the kids found that so late into kind of them being in the bunker. Like, it's not like Emma and Ray to not investigate the entirety of this shelter before letting their guard down and letting the kids roam around. Um, So I was like, what the fuck? They didn't find this the entire time. Like, didn't Mm. they go down that hallway with all the bedrooms? How are they only now finding this? Yeah. And I'm just like... I, like the secret passage behind the piano for me i thought like it was either an escape a quick escape for the kids or it's a way for the demons to sneak inside um and what made it worse was that when they revealed this this help sign you know like first you get the the shot of the kids walking into the bedroom and they look all shocked or whatever and then it the camera changes to the help sign the help sign like the the warning sign and they do like this sudden zoom in and like have this loud sound it was a very very cheap scare and i'm like this this feels like something out of like a you know some like indie horror game where they're using jump scares to try and like get a reaction out of you i was very disappointed by how they the whole thing kind of got revealed but then like also they don't do anything they find the help stuff and they don't explain why it says help right cuz like mm-hmm weren't the kids safe in there why don't they ever explain it but then two it's like you never get the kids reaction to it they they're reacting to it when they first see it but then after that it's like they just brush it under the rug and they don't talk about it again so i'm like what was the whole point of that and also because we find out later on that the demons or whomever are working with um the farms to find where these kids are so it's implied that this shelter was never found before right that's my understanding because... So, like, why is why is there a, an etching of help on the wall? Exactly. Like, <laughs> was there something that went down before? I thought, like, maybe William Minerva was, like, a bad guy or something. Like, mm-hmm. maybe this is a trap or some sort of setup. Because when they found that hidden passage behind the piano, I was like, okay, it's either a quick escape for the kids or it's a way for, like, bad guys to sneak inside. Yeah. So I'm like, is this whole thing a trap? Is it a setup? And maybe that's the intention behind these pieces kind of all coming together um, was to to trick the audience into thinking that. 
But then it's so short-lived. It's like, why even bother doing that if that wasn't the case? And this is a common thing in this season. We often get these like buildups to some like big plot twist that doesn't actually end up being a plot twist. Like they want you to think or assume that something you know else is going on, but then they very quickly, and I mean very quickly, turn around and they're like, oh, just kidding. Actually, it's not that way. It was you know the the original way you were assuming things were. Like for example, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but um, I think it's like one of the last episodes when the bald guy is like radioing in to somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think he connects with like mama or someone and he's like, oh, I want to give you all the information um, in exchange for my freedom. And it seems like he's going to betray the kids. And then literally the start of the next episode, they're like, nah, just kidding. That's not what's happening. Like it's it's just these cheap plot twists that don't even end up being real plot twists. It's all just a bunch of like mind fuck for <laughs> for the audience members. Yeah, especially with this episode paired with the next episode, you know, it, it feels like everything's not as right as it seems but i think what the show does wrong here is like it kind of overstays the welcome of you know things are still hunky-dory and then like when we do see that the the compound gets infiltrated like yeah it's terrible for the kids but then they kind of just pick things up again and everything's still hunky-dory when they get to that demon's temple so there's i feel like the stakes like they're they're there but they're not as high as they should be if, if you catch my drift. Yeah. In episode four, it turns out the phone call is just a recording of William, who reveals his true identity as James Rattree, a disillusioned house farm affiliate who sought to guide other children to the shelter as well as a path to the human world. The Gracefield gang, however, resolves to rescue their counterparts from all the other houses before escaping to the human world. And what better way to get their asses moving than with an ambush of the shelter by a human SWAT team and a close encounter with a wild demon monster? In a subplot, we learn that Gracefield Gang's mama was imprisoned for allowing their escape, but is given a chance at freedom if she assists in capturing them, to which she ecstatically agrees. Again, here, with the revelation the with William's phone call, um, I think he assures the kids that this is meant to be their shelter, and so there's a lot of lull for a majority of this episode. And again, this is where I'm, I say that this show kind of overstays its welcome with making these kids have these happy moments and then you have again the weird SWAT team that appears and that also again takes you out of out of the fantasy element of this series because you see these I don't know if you want to call them soldiers or officers that are dressed up in tactical gear and holding assault rifles and you're you're supposed to like again you were saying that the technology in the show matches so much of the real world that it's like what are what is this series trying to establish are we in a fantasy world or is it like fantasy mixed in with real world elements yeah it's super confusing and i agree with you like they definitely so it was obvious something bad was going to happen this episode because they were laying on the pleasantries way too thick Mm -hmm. like way too thick um and even though the explosion was like an unexpected moment it felt more random than like a, a true surprise or shock it was more like when I was watching it, I, I was kind of like, oh, okay. Like it just kind of seemed like they tried to have this big moment in this, um, like in the last episode with the the help warning reveal, but it just isn't, it didn't land. Like it didn't stick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to your point about the military people, um, it's just like, 
what is going on? I don't know. Like, it was so weird. Like, why do they have this modern gear, especially if they're not crossing over into the human world? Mm-hmm. Like, I'd expect the the demon and human worlds, again, to be completely separate. But while they feel separate because the demons look one way and have certain types of technology and the humans look another way and have certain types of technology, why wouldn't the humans living in the demon world use the demon technology, right? Like, it just seems mm-hmm. like everything is extremely separated even in the same world. Um, and also, how the fuck did a bunch of little kids fight off adults in tactical gear with assault rifles using just bow and bows and arrows? Like, how? How is that possible? <laughs> I don't understand. It was so stupid. I think that one kid just, like, shot an arrow at the one soldier and, like, I don't know, incapacitated him somehow. And I rolled my eyes so fucking hard. I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> and now that I think about it more, none of them died. None of the kids died despite these these tactical people or military whatever people having the resources to, to shoot them. I remember there was one scene where I think it's Don and one of the kids, Rossi, who was like, uh, they were in the security room and they were stuck there. And for a moment you think, oh shit, this is the end for them. But they just happened to narrowly escape with the other children. And that's what I mean. There are no high stakes in the show at all yeah and like well to that point i think the intent was for them to bring them back safe because they needed to eat their brains or whatever but what was really cool about season one one of probably the most unexpected moments for me was when mama broke emma's leg like that Mm. was that was fucking brutal and super out of left field i did not expect her to do that but like that just that was great writing in my my opinion because I would have never called that. I would have never thought that that was the solution she would have to the problem of trying to get Emma back to the house. But here, it's like, I, I would have been probably, now it sounds really messed up, but I probably would have been more satisfied with this whole military thing if they like shot out one of their legs just to incapacitate them so they could kidnap them. Something more realistic, because as brutal as that sounds or as horrible as that sounds, that's probably what would happen in a more realistic situation to try and keep the kids from escaping, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't you don't kill them, but they can't get away. Similar to the very realistic decision that Mama made in season one by breaking Emma's leg, so she couldn't run away because she knows how fast she is. And there's a lot of character development that can be you know written into those kinds of scenes. Like this this event could harden the kids to really find the the, um, the capacity to to survive out there. Yeah. Exactly, because it just—it's way too cushy for kids that are supposed to be literally, you know, fighting off death at this yeah. point. Um, I love though the reveal of Mama. I, I love her character. Her and sister, her and sister Crone. I realized I called her Miss Crone earlier, but it's Sister Crone, right? Yeah. Um, her and Sister Crone were probably some of my favorite characters from season one. Um, I was kind of like intrigued, you know, that demon whispered something in her ear and kind of making a deal with her. And I was hoping it had something to do with Ray because they kind of hinted um, in this, the first season that Ray was her child based on that lullaby that he was humming. And I was like, I, I was so excited by that. I was, and it goes nowhere. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I thought that was so cool. I'm like, oh shit, this could be a whole other like side story to the show. And it just like nothing happened. And he, like, they don't even address the fact that, that he is most likely her child um, in the second season. And I'm like, I want to hear more about that. Like, that's interesting because she's such like a, a cold person who sends these kids off to go be eaten. But here is like literally her, her child, most likely. What would she do in that situation? And also mm-hmm. like Ray just having to cope with the fact that, that his mom is probably mama. Like that whole thing 
had so much potential and we got nothing out of it but it was cool to see mama return yeah i remember she even had like the this very snide grin on her face um because i if you recall back in season one she kind of internally like wished success for the children right because that's yeah. something that she had wanted to do when she was younger but ultimately it, it that never came to be but then she has this about face here um so you don't know if she had actually has evil intentions for the children even though she had hopeful intentions for the children previously yeah mama's such a complex character because you're right like she her situation is literally life and death like her her job is to keep these children until they're ready to be shipped off and if she doesn't do her job she gets killed so it's just yeah there, there was so much potential with her character too but we barely even see her in the season we see her in the beginning for one second in this episode and then we see her for like what two episodes at the end maybe yeah for like two or three scenes it's it's terrible what a waste of a good character what a waste of the whole show <laughs> in episode five as demon society hears rumors of the farms being attacked the gracefield gang sets up shop inside an abandoned demon temple and make disguised visits to a nearby demon duong for supplies one day a blind demon happens to waltz into the temple but emma compassionately assists him despite him most likely knowing that she is human. On the gang's next town excursion, their disguises are compromised by a pair of demons, but they are saved by another group of humans disguised as demons, led by, gee, who didn't see this coming, Emma and Ray's old friend Norman back from the dead. The only thing I want to say about this episode is those fucking kids ruined everything. Wait, which kids? The, the kids the, from the, the Lambda yeah, facility? No, the the Toma and Lanny, the ones who were like, oh, look, we want to go into town with you guys. Oh, the the twins who aren't actually twins, but they seem like twins? Yeah. Yeah. If, oh. if they didn't come, none of this would have happened. I mean, we probably wouldn't have gotten Norman coming back, but yeah, the, like them wanting to come into town, like that was just a red flag that's this is not going to go well. And that was another cliche thing too. It's like you yeah. called that a mile away when they were all like, oh, we want to go too. And then everyone was hesitant. They're like, oh no, we're going to be fine. And then they weren't fine. So yeah, that was bullshit. And then they, again, they survived. Like it would have been, again, this sounds very morbid, but if they died again, that just, that is another reason that the stakes could have been raised. And that would give Emma and Ray more reason to protect the kids who are still alive. Yeah, um, you're right. It's like the the consequences are, like the stakes are low for for these kids. They can basically fuck up all they want, and mm -hmm. nothing bad happens. And then you know we called it. We called it that Norman wasn't dead. We already talked about that, so I won't dive into that. Um, but we do find out that the demons need human meat, otherwise they revert or degenerate or whatever it is yeah so at this point like they started to make us feel a little bit of sympathy for the enemy, um, which I didn't mind. I thought that was interesting um and then of course emma feels bad for the for the demons because that's you know that's her, that's her personality um that was annoying though like to have a very sudden about face with the demons well i think it's typical for emma i was not surprised because that that is her nature like she wants to save everyone so i'd actually be more surprised if she was like no nah, kill all the demons dude like mm -hmm. fuck them all <laughs> that's not her nature like maybe ray would do something like that but not her Maybe just because it felt so sudden for her to decide that. And I know I said earlier, like, it's nice that the show kind of rushes, not rushes, but picks things up at a very quick pace. But I think this part of Emma, like, kind of realizing 
that there's another way to to resolve the situation without resorting to violence was a little bit rushed yeah yeah um i also so there was that one very brief moment in this episode where there was the demon that smelled the kids before they left i think they might have been wearing like yellow or something but it was like after so when the when like emma and ray were trying to escape i think it was after the kids fucked it up and alerted everyone to their presence Mm. they were still trying to kind of like quietly escape and there was a demon that came up to them and kind of smelled one of them and then kind of like walked over to the it was near the gate and like they kind of walked to the right and kind of just left and in my head i was like okay like what was that about like the the demon smelled them and then just walked away and i'm like is this supposed to be one of the kids undercover like one of norman's group undercover that's what i was gonna say or i thought it was actually gonna be mama like i thought it was gonna be mama and like that she's been keeping an eye on them and then she kind of like leaves because like why would a demon sniff a child smell that they're a human and then walk away Unless that's literally what they wrote it to be. So I don't know if maybe that was supposed to be part of Norman's gang or somebody else. And I just didn't put two and two together. But I'm like, what, what was the point of that? They made it very obvious that this demon came up and or supposed a demon came up and sniffed one of the kids and then just walked over to the right and left. I don't know, man. Like just these little things are, are really annoying when you're kind of watching this show unfold. Yeah, I think we would have to rewatch that scene just to see if that was one of the one of the gang that showed up with Norman, but I doubt we will ever want to rewatch this show. <laughs> uh, episode 5.5. Fuck it. Yeah, it was just a recap episode, but who cares? Yeah, I think recap because they were so delayed on everything. As if there weren't already enough red flags. <laughs> they were like, oh shit, we got to throw in a recap episode. Sorry, guys. Yeah. So onwards to episode six. Emotions run high as the toddler face trio share a very teary reunion. Norman explains that he was shipped to an experimental farm that sought to efficiently mass-produce high-grade human meat, but was able to escape from and destroy the facility with the help of a Minerva supporter and other experimental captives. Norman continues his lore dump by saying that sharing that demons eat humans to keep their brains in good shape lest they fall back into their savage forms, and that he has developed a drug that should commit a good amount of demon genocide. Ray, however, senses that Emma does not want to kill off the demons, since Mujiga and Sanju's existence proves that they can survive without making a human burger helper. They head to Norman's headquarters, but first encounter his eccentric crew of discount demon slayers. When Norman finally shows up and Emma brings up Mujiga's name, however, he exclaims, You mean the evil-blooded bitch? I kind of figured they were going to go this route with Norman, where they have him, like, change in terms of, like, his personality or his beliefs, or have some sort of like plan that Emma doesn't agree with and both came to fruition. Um, see, the thing is, Emma is still true to her character because she, in this episode, she says she wants to find another way to bring, bring peace among the demons and the humans. Ray stays true to his character by having a very frank conversation with her, um, you know, where he tries to understand both sides of the coin, like why mm-hmm. we would want to destroy the demons and why we would want to save them because that's Ray's personality. And then Norman does, like you said, a total about face and is totally different. We we find out later it's because of the trauma that he went through at the Lambda facility. But man, I loved Norman so much in season one. And the fact that of the trio, he was the most level-headed person. Like Ray obviously had, you know, he, he was a traitor at first, understandably mm-hmm. so given the situation. But then he came around. 
Emma, you know, had really bad struggles with, you know, trying to to figure out a way to save everyone, knowing that, that likelihood wasn't very high. Um, but Norman, I think, while he had certain moments where he freaked out, he was the most level-headed character. And here they completely changed that. And, like, so I'm on the fence because I get it. Like, they're trying to take the most reasonable character and have him change just to show us how uh, how terrible the things that they went through were at the Lambda facility, right? Like, they're trying mm-hmm. to stress that point. But at the same time, it's like, but I like Norman the way he was. Now you've taken a great character and you've basically ruined him in order to to service the plot, basically. Yeah, it's kind of like that that song. I forgot who sang it, but like even the best fall down sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's a very cliche thing to do to show like this this character that we put on a pedestal for so long have this fall from grace. Um, but I guess what's interesting is at some point in the episode when he's having the conversation with Emma about what to do with the demons, he repeats something that Emma said from the house which is if there's no place for humans, let's make one outside. So I think there's a lot of interpretation there because now he has a twisted means to that end. Whereas again, em- like you said, Emma wants to you know, save the world through, I guess, almost like diplomatic means, but he has a very genocidal, um, uh, genocidal solution to that. And this is kind of like a, that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he points at the screen Norman says he wants to make the demons extinct and basically says no more Neverland. He says he says the title of the show. Oh shit, he did. <laughs> that's right. It's like that's kind title of title drop. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. Um very meta. Yes, very very meta. And another instance in this episode of, you know, modern day plain clothes, that's what we see Norman's crew wearing and it just takes you out of the story because I think who is it? So the three there's three characters in the Norman's gang that are introduced in here, which is Cislo, Barbara, and... Cisco. <laughs> song, song. Cislo, <laughs> uh, Barbara, and Vincent. I think Cislo was wearing overalls. Barbara had this shirt with, like, a star on it. Um, and Vincent, you know, just kind of looks like everyone else um, um, in the show. But it's just weird just seeing these these modern clothes on these characters. Again, in this supposedly fantasy like world speaking of barbara another example of very lazy writing in this show um barbara's like you know going berserk and ranting about killing all the demons and then emma kind of has this like horrified look on her face so barbara takes one look at emma and immediately called that she was feeling sympathy for the demons and that emma didn't want to kill them anymore she like looked at her and was like oh are you suddenly sympathetic are you on their side i'm like how does she take one look at her face and immediately come to this completely accurate conclusion about what emma's thinking i was like do you even are you even trying at this point i mean clearly you weren't but mm-hmm. <laughs> i was still asking the question are you even trying at this point it's just like shove everything so obvious in our face. They're really trying to like move quickly through the plot. But again, it's like if that's going to be that lazy, why even have that moment in the show? Just write it out. It was it didn't it didn't play that big of a of a importance to the overall story. You could have just had, you know, Barbara figure this out a different way. But then Barbara goes ahead and, and joins Emma's cause later on. Oh my god, so. yeah, we'll get to that cuz that was <laughs> oh. oh, lord of mercy. In episode seven, 
In a largely uninspiring talking episode, Norman explains that Mujica's blood does stop demons from degenerating, but was only given to demon nobility so they could control the rest of society via the human meat economy. Although previously believed to have been dead, Norman concludes that Mujika and Sanju must now be properly killed as their existence somehow poses a threat to humanity. Emma obviously disagrees, and an argument ensues until Norman gives her five days to find the demonic duo, and he'll reconsider his genocide plan, which we know is a fucking lie. Finally, an epilogue scene sets up exactly what happened when Norman left Gracefield House, but didn't he already fucking tell us what happened? In episode 8... In a semi-flashback episode, Norman is greeted by Peter Rotry, the director of the experimental Lambda Farm, where Norman's mental intellect was poked and prodded until he escapes the facility with the discount Demon Slayers thanks to a well-planted and plot-holed bomb, and vows to destroy all demon life as we know it. Back in the present, the Gracefield gang track Mujika and Sanju using bird hunting patterns, but too late. Norman has activated his doomsday device a day early, and the demon Duong is tearing itself to shreds. Norman prepares to kill a young demon girl when that blind demon from a couple episodes before calls out her name, Martha. Oh, wait, Emma. Oh, my God. And he stops the girl's degeneration with his blood, which possesses the same qualities as Mujica's. Norman is smackledorfed as Emma and Ray arrive to console their prodigal friend. And this is where I got so pissed. Because what is <laughs> you this? You did. You what, did. What is this? Bat- Batman versus Superman? <laughs> which was a shit okay i hated that movie by the way i didn't say that me from a comic standpoint i i enjoyed it uh from a movie going standpoint yeah it was shit but you know how fitting that this show takes a cue from one of the most reviled superhero movies ever made like <laughs> i cannot i it still confounds me that they use this this name trope for for norman to suddenly realize the error of his ways yeah oh my god like just the whole this is like the real turning point i think this is when we all kind of threw our hands in the air and we're like this is fucked this whole thing is fucked like the i don't know just this episode i i didn't even write notes about how bad this episode was just because it irked me so much i did write some some notes on a few lazy writing moments but i i can hold off on that if you want to share your thoughts on the actual episode um the only two positives, I guess, for this episode. <laughs> um, I liked the quote that Norman says, which is, I will gladly become a god or a devil. And you see the shot of the sun kind of setting on his face where it shows like Norman is just very willing to make this hard choice of proceeding with his genocide plan. Um, and then obviously that's backfired because the, the demon calls out Martha or Emma or whatever her fucking name was. <laughs> Um, the other thing is, you know, when, when the demon Duong does like end up destroying itself because this, this gas is get or forcing them to degenerate. It, it is kind of sad to see that. Um, and the music in the scene, it was almost reminiscent of, you know, the, the epic scores of Attack on Titan, where I believe there were like strings and, and, um, a choir that were, uh, playing during this scene. And it just kind of puts you in the moment of seeing, you know the sadness of these these demons who the show has humanized um trying to you know salvage their families as best as they can even though they're they're resorting to these their savage forms yeah i have to agree um i will say that that was definitely i think 
one of the most powerful moments of the season. So while this mm-hmm. overall episode eight was pretty shit, that was a very, very moving moment. Um, and I don't know, like I, I wish that there was more of that and less of like the the cheap scares or plot twists because I think that's what, I don't know, I think that's what would have made season two more successful is like season one was all about the suspense and the mystery. And I think season two would have benefited from focusing more on these very heavy themes because the overall plot is very heavy like eating to survive mm-hmm. and kind of you know grappling with what's right and what's wrong based on you know which side you're on so yeah i think that that was a missed opportunity for sure but in terms of my lazy writing points um i just have a couple here so first off when they're in the forest how the hell did they not hear that big ass CGI spider demon who suddenly blew up the tree and attacked them? Like this thing is ginormous. And we've heard before <laughs> in other episodes when it runs, you can hear like the stomping footprints or handprints or whatever it is um, that they added to that, that demon as it's running. So well, it's it, not it like had stealth mode. It. it had stealth yeah, mode it had on. Stealth mode. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but like not only that look at how slow they made the thing run just so emma could escape i was like squirming in my seat i'm like there's literally no way that giant ass demon with like eight legs could not keep up or not immediately catch emma like they have her literally running across like an empty space in the forest and the demon cannot keep up with with emma like it's it's barely pacing her and i'm like that's not possible there's literally no way that that's possible well, elma's become so skilled at tag now no, apparently she can... <laughs> she's as, as fast as the flash because she was just booking it and could outrun this thing which now that i think about remember in i think the first episode it was implying that emma was not like well in health yeah although i think we've had um a year time skip by this point haven't we I think a, a couple months at the very least, but is that never that never really played a factor at all? Yeah, just in that one episode, and then she was apparently all hunky dory after that. Yeah, but then after okay, so let me just let me take a breath here. Okay, so after that, Ray shoots one one of this thing's many eyes and somehow knocks it the fuck out, and then he looks up. And it's about to eat Emma. Like, this is another one of those, like, stupid, you know, cheap jump scares that they have um, or plot twists or whatever you want to call it. Like, okay, he, he let, me, let me just repeat this. He shoots one eyeball out of, like, the bajillion eyeballs that it has, <laughs> and it knocks out. But it knocks out for a split second because he blinks and, like, looks back up, and it's already about to eat Emma. Like, so did it knock out or did it not knock out? And then Sonju comes out of fucking nowhere and effortlessly, and I'm stressing the word effortlessly, slices this entire thing's head off without even getting off of his horse. And this thing is like eight times the size of Sonju. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? So anyway, moving on from that. Blood armor. <laughs> the other lazy writing moment um, is that, uh, right? I think right after this, they hear the explosion um, that happens in the town. I think the one that Norman caused. But... They couldn't see it. There's literally no way they could see that explosion from that thick-ass forest they were in. But somehow they heard it and they saw it and they knew exactly where to go. But I'm like, how? I thought this forest was fucking far away from everything else because my last lazy writing point... (laughs) 
is that yeah is that emma and ray cover so much ground in such a short amount of time looking for sonjo sonju and mujika so again like my assumption is because they spent days covering like so much ground which to me wasn't even enough time to cover that big of a forest because we saw the map we know how big the area is mm -hmm. um they I, I would assume that they were far away from the town so it's like i how, how are all these pieces coming together like i just i do not understand like the the whole episode was just so frustrating to me kind of comparing this again to another series that just had a trash ending game of thrones this is kind of like there was that episode where um john snow was stuck uh somewhere fighting off all of the what were they called like the ice the white walkers the, the white walkers yeah and they sent someone back to, to daenerys right um to help have her come over with her dragons to take them all out and i remember someone on reddit calculated the time it would have taken for that messenger to go all the way back to wherever daenerys was um to help save Jon snow i'm wondering if someone can do a calculation of how ray and emma and the, the gang in the forest were able to make it all the way back to the demon town <laughs> to 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 fend off whatever was happening there that's a really good fucking question and there actually is a subreddit that i follow called i think the subreddit's called um are they did the math so we should probably post that on there and see if someone actually wants to take a photo like look at the photo of the map or look at the map um from the show and then do the calculations on the distance and the time it would have taken for all of these things to unfold because I just I could not fathom how they cover that much ground in such a short amount of time. Yeah. In episode nine, Emma tells Norman that he does not have to go it alone in saving humanity, even though his time is limited. He finally gives up on his quest for demonic revenge, and his band of discount demon slayers hesitantly, but quickly, mind you, agree to do so as well. While Mujica begins a humanitarian or demonitarian? effort to reverse the degeneracy of the demon Duong. The gang learns that Phil and the remaining kids at Gracefield's house are about to be shipped, although in reality it is a trap set, it is a trap set up by Peter Rattry, who intends to expand on the Lambda's high-grade human meat model to increase his stonks. The blind demon, whose name is Vilk, gives Emma <laughs> with a pen... His stonks! Yeah, his stonks. I, don't, I don't know what the fuck he wanted to do. I, again, I don't fucking care. <laughs> the blind demon, whose name is Vilk, gifts Emma with a pen he received from a dying human 15 years ago, which conveniently contains the blueprints for the Demon HQ, as well as an antidote for the Lambda experimental drugs. They all make peace and put together a plan to save Grace, the Gracefield children. Too bad they didn't put together a plan to save this show from sinking any further. Although one of the discount demon slayers, Vincent the Baldi, seems to betray the gang at the end of the episode by striking a deal with Gracefield House over the radio. But trust me, this shit's about to go nowhere. Okay, I'm gonna let you take this one. I want you to take the whole shit about Norman's crew having a change of heart, because I know this pissed you the fuck off. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> but yeah, this is where... I think this episode is just where the show really goes downhill. And I said before, again, with Sanju introducing the lore of the bigger world, that was fine because, you know, it, it kept things going. But here for Norman's crew to suddenly just make this about face and say, you know what, we'll, we'll, we're done with, with killing demons. We agree with you. was like, there's no point of contention there, especially with character Barbara. Although we see Barbara like struggling with like her PTSD when she's trying to kill one of the the demon kids, um, 
but and like she like wrestles for for with that thought for a minute and struggles to to reconcile it but i don't know for someone who's or these characters who have gone through all of these experiments for them to kind of like wash that away and forgive forgive all of that um i don't know (laughs) i i i I don't know it's like again they're not even trying at this point and by they i mean the writers because yeah that was absolute bs i i think that um like there needed to be obviously like it's not to say that they can't do that right it's not to say that these characters can't have a 180 have a change of heart and you know get on board with this plan to to save humans and demons but to do so in literally like five seconds is unreasonable especially given you know the the hate that these kids have harbored for these demons after what they've been put through at the lambda facility so it just yeah it was stupid it was just like the stupid is the best word that i can find mm-hmm. for to describe that situation and, and that writing it was just stupid it's like everything here is just so tied up in like a neat little bow and again where is the tension where is the catch and we got a little taste of that when we see vincent's like seemingly betray the group at the end but we're gonna learn in episode 10 that this was all a ruse and so e- everything is still under control like don't worry They'll, they'll they'll all be fine in the end yeah yeah <laughs> it was it was pretty bad and another thing that i'm thinking about now um with the character vilk like how can we again as Who's i mentioned vilk? vilk's the the blind demon oh the old dude yeah like i said in the synopsis synopsis how convenient that he holds he, he holds the master key to everything that will save these kids. Yeah, that was overly convenient. Like, Mm -hmm. just way too convenient that the pen piece that he got 15-whatever years ago, again, not only had, to your point earlier, not only had the data on the farm headquarters, but even had the recipe for the cure. Like, my God. (laughs) This This was my lazy writing piece for this episode, is that whole thing was just... Like, again, did you even try? Yeah. <laughs> did you even try? And not only that, like, I know they introduced this fact earlier where, you know, certain demons had the, like, this magical blood that Mujiga gave to everyone. But introducing Vilk as, like, another character have that kind of downplays Mujiga's and San- Sanju's importance. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I very much think so. And also, like, why would there be a cure? I don't know. It's just weird that there's a cure to the experience experiments that were being done on these kids right Mm -hmm. like why if they're experiments why would there be a cure it's not like i don't know how to describe it like i would assume that they would experiment on them and then whatever the outcome is for these kids they wouldn't care they would just discard them and get new kids right for their other experiments why would there be an actual cure it's not like it's a poison or something i don't know it just Mm. was weird that there was a cure in the first place and they never established who that human is right if i don't know if it was supposed to be william minerva I thought just... it was supposed to be Minerva, but I could be wrong. I thought it was supposed to be him or someone in this group helping the kids escape. Or like it could have been a Lambda researcher and that's why they, they had this information on this cure. Maybe they wanted to have that just in case there was a candidate of potential that was close to dying, kind of like Norman. But Yeah, I don't know because they don't flush out anything in this show. So they mm-hmm. leave us with a lot of questions. Yep. In episode 10, we're almost done here, folks. <laughs> Operation Phil's Freedom commences. 
Turns out that Norman instructed Vincent to betray the gang by telling Peter Rattray that Norman is dropping his demon degeneracy drug via air balloons over the house farms. Peter orders all children to be evacuated to the HQ while the decoy balloons are shot down and create explosive chaos. And miraculously, the Gracefield gang's balloons survive the attack as they infiltrate Gracefield House and save these kids, who of course think it's a game of tag. Just as they reach the elevator leading to the gate to the human world, Mama shows up with the mom gang to stop them. But guess what? She conveniently betrays Peter and reveals that they are no longer under microchip control. Peter waits on his demon reinforcements to arrive, but he is greeted instead by demon mutineers who have also sided with the Gracefield gang. With nowhere else to go, Emma approaches the long-haired lobotomizer and extends her hand as a sign of peace. This show just continues to sink to new lows. <laughs> and here's another fun, or I guess fucked up fact. There are no writing credits for this episode. I know. I heard that no one... Okay, so I saw this on Twitter. No one wanted to take credit for the writing on episode for 10. For this piece of shite. Like, that's that's bad like that that's real bad like mm-hmm. if you tuned into the episode that we um had a guest spot on on otaku melancholy podcast for my sister my writer that was a, a dumpster fire in terms of animation but even then there were still credits there were still credit given for the animation despite it being absolute shit although they had a cry for help in there yeah <laughs> it was it was not a great um you know bunch of credit given but Nonetheless, there was credit given or at least um, acknowledged. Here, it's like they didn't even want to take blame for what the fuck was going on in episode 10, which, by the way, just felt like a bunch of plot points for this final arc crammed into a single episode. Like, my God, what was happening in this episode 10? I I get that it's a very well-coordinated plan, and the way that visually they framed it, it was almost like an espionage or heist film. But I say again... Where was the goddamned tension or risk in this episode? Yeah, and the whole thing was stupidly easy. Like, somehow the old dude, the what's his name again? Vilk. Vilk. Just gets all of the, the demon civilians to rise up and revolt, and, and it just so happens that they arrive just in time. And then, like, conveniently, all of the mamas or the mom's chest bombs were suddenly hacked and deactivated. Like, they suddenly knew how to do that. I'm like, what the fuck? And then everything is just so rushed and nothing is properly explained. Like, how long was it between, you know, learning about Gracefield shipping everyone out to when they finally attacked the farms? Like, it it must have been a while because they had enough time to not only make one hot air balloon, but several of them complete with remote bombs. And I'm like, I know these kids are geniuses, but they still have physical limitations. There's no way they could yeah. pump out a bunch of hot air balloons and remote bombs in like like a day or two, or right? Where, yeah, where the hell did they have the resources to build these two? Yeah, and like, yeah, the resources is a good point because they not only built enough for them, but they also built two like a couple of empty balloons just that they could use as decoy. So like they overproduced the amount of hot air balloons that they needed. So I'm like, why? Like, what is even going on? And I think the biggest crime, and this may not have been this episode, it may have been the previous one. Um, but the, the biggest crime about all of this is that like the kids readily accept Norman after everything that he's done. Like he destroys the entire demon town. Oh no, I'm sorry. Not, not, not Norman. Or sorry, not the kids. God, I'm like going all the place. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me start over. So Norman destroys the entire demon town and there's like no consequences for him from the demons that are now partnering with him. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they're all like, Oh, Oh, well, I guess everything's fine now. No hard feelings. Like, 
I get if the kids accepted him because he's, you know, part of their family. But the fucking demons are like, yeah, no problem, dude. I know you just tried to kill all of our people and you came up with a mass genocide plan, but it's cool. It's cool. You, you've, you've changed your ways and it's all right now. It's kind of like going back to like um, the DC reference. It's like when Superman, got spoilers here, but whatever, in Man of Steel destroys like half of Metropolis while he's battling General Zod, but everyone still loves him at the end. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, Norman is Superman in this case, although still a bit of a dick. And in the final episode 11, Peter refuses to join Emma and elaborates on his backstory, but by this point, who really fucking cares? He decides to end Hero after declaring that the world can't be changed. The demon monarchy isn't informed of his death, but once again, who really fucking cares? Emma takes all the humans onto the elevator and down to the gateway that crosses into the human world, which Norman unlocks using Vilk's pen. However, the toddler-faced trio, the discount demon slayers, and Mujika and Sanju for obvious reasons, decide to stay behind in the demon world and plan to cross over once they are able to right the wrongs of demon society and mend the promise between humans and demons. Our boy Phil gives Emma one last tearful hug, promising to save her if anything happens as he passes through the gateway before it closes shut. We then get a blazing montage of the kids growing up in the human world in what seems to be New York City while the remaining Gracefield gang works to crown Mujika as the rightful queen of the demons before finally crossing over into the human world, all over the course of two, count them, two minutes. So the moral of this story, no one really fucking cares. <laughs> and the best comment I found online about that ending scene with the montage is, what a great Microsoft PowerPoint slideshow. <laughs> like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so let's do this. For this last episode, let's talk about the episode itself, but I think we can kind of all tie this in with really our overall thoughts for this season because these are going to go hand in hand. Like, they're just going to go hand in hand. And what I tweeted out on our um, Strictly Series Twitter account was that I think through episode 11, we witnessed this anime crash land into the ground. But at the very least, it blessed us with best boy Phil. Mm -hmm. He was the best part of season two, and he was barely in it. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I just I have no words. Like, did they really just fucking give up at the end? The answer is yes. They did just fucking give up at the end. Like, yeah. they realized or must have realized that the season was so shit that they didn't even try for a third season to properly finish the story. Like, holy shit, that's bad. It's kind of like that, that meme of the horse where, you know, it starts off as a beautiful drawing and then you get to the tail end <laughs> and it's just like a kid's drawing. Yeah, it's just a like a, like a scribble at that point. And it feels like this ending, and I guess this whole season was written by a five-year-old for just how happy everything seems to tie together yeah it's like even it's though so annoying like yeah you're right getting from point a to point b was shit but point b was basically like all happy and go lucky and tied up with a nice nice neat bow like it was messy along the way and then somehow it just all worked out perfectly but it really shouldn't have mm -hmm. um and honestly like i kind of just want to retcon season two and pre pretend that only season one exists because season one was phenomenal and season two was horseshit <laughs> yeah well i was reading articles online like they like from the manga reader's perspective, like this is basically the story that happens in the manga. And I know that they, they took out a crucial arc, which everyone's calling like the Goldie Pond arc. Um, but I think the anime was, was semi-meant to be like a course correction for the issues within the manga's plot. 
but clearly the path they chose didn't seem to be any better. And I know, I think that the writer, what was his name again? Uh, Kai Ushirai was involved with the show. So he could have had input on, you know, making a better outcome, but ultimately they didn't. Yeah. I mean, to that point, it's definitely a risk to deviate from the source material. Um, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing that, right? Like it should really mm. be the writer's vision. Like it's their story. It should be how they envisioned telling it, even if we don't like it as an audience. And I'm looking at you crazy weebs who like to send death threats if something doesn't go your way, <laughs> like chill, man. Um, and sometimes the creators want to try out something different, like a different version of the story. But this makes me wonder if season two would have been more successful if they stuck to the manga, because I've heard from many manga readers um that while it wasn't great the manga it wasn't bad either like it was fine mm. like it was like it's not perfect but it's not like it's not like this it's not like the anime um i was hearing though that manga readers were saying you know season one was basically the peak of of this series and then everything after that like you say it's great but it it's not terrific yeah, no, I heard that too, that yeah. like similar to what we experienced in the anime, like season one was the best, like that, mm -hmm. whatever chapter season one covered, like that was the best part of the show. And then the rest kind of went downhill. But I, I still heard from manga readers that the manga was ultimately better. Like the second half of the manga was ultimately better than what we got in season two of the anime. Like season mm -hmm. two of the anime really just kind of fucked it all up. Um, and when you kind of think about it, like it's, it's a tricky situation to be in, right? To to make the decision to change the story when you're going from the manga to the anime adaptation. Because from one point of view, manga readers may be salty because they were looking forward to the story being animated the way they read it and how it unfolded. Um, and then anime, you know, only people might be annoyed because they don't get to see the same story as the manga readers, unless of course they go and read the manga. Um, but on the flip side, it's kind of like a new take for everyone to go this direction and, and change up the story. But mm -hmm. again, like it's a huge risk and it's not a risk that paid off in this situation. Like it just, it just wasn't. I mean, at the end, they really just said, fuck it. And they phoned it in with a montage, a slideshow <laughs> of how the story ends. And honestly, when I was watching it at first, I thought, oh, we're just getting some confirmation that there's like a human world. And apparently the gate is right outside of New York. And, you know, maybe they're just kind of like progressing the story a little bit to set us up for season three. And then I felt more and more doom wash over me as I realized, like, this is the ending. Mm -hmm. Like, when they got back to New York, like, Emma, all aged up, by the way. Like, they got back to New York, and they hugged Phil, and uh, it cut to black. And I was like, wait, that was actually the ending. Like, that's all we got. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, what the fuck? And I feel like everything that happens in this, I guess, it was two minutes. I, like, I remember, like, putting on a timer of how long this is. They fit. Here, let me... I'm pulling up this quote from Cinemaholic. The producers condensed 144 chapters, which is 15 volumes, into the 11 episodes of season two, which, again, skipped crucial arcs such as Goldie Pond Battle. So they crammed, I want to say, almost 50 chapters into this one two-minute montage. And I want to say, like, everything that happens in the sequence looks much more interesting than whatever happened this whole season. Agreed. Like, there are so many stories that I feel could have been told here in another season. Although I know we probably wouldn't be enthralled by it because of the sour taste that season two would have left in our mouth. But again, we could have seen like the implications of the kids growing up in the human world, the perils of the journey for those who stayed behind. What the fuck was that floating demon and the one-eyed monster behind them? 
And what if Phil did have to go back and save Emma? Those are questions. I don't know if the manga answers them, but those are questions that have just been left unanswered. Again, because they wanted to just tie everything up as quickly as they could into this half-assed bow. Yeah, the whole season was so butchered, but the slideshow ending was just the fucking cherry on top. <laughs> like, it's like, why not at that point? Honestly, the, moldy the, way, cherry on top. the way it all came about, like, why not just throw in the towel at that point? I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want that to be the situation, but it's also just kind of ironic that that's how it all happened after things just went downhill real fast in season mm-hmm. two. Oh, man. And, like, I, I have some notes here. Uh, I just want to call a couple things about this last episode. Um, somehow all the kids just forgave mama and everyone lived happily ever after. Um, mm-hmm. somehow the pen is the literal only thing that can open the fucking gate to the human world. A pen. Like what the fuck? What if it broke? Yeah. Um, and like the whole pen concept, let me just take a second here. The whole pen concept is fucking wild. Like apparently not only can you write papers with it, you can use a hologram computer map code word puzzle game and unlock the gateway to the human world with it i'm like all right this pen is op um and also did anyone else notice that when peter slit his throat the knife was spotless when it fell to the ground like all of that fucking (laughs) blood and then the you see that shot of like just the knife hitting the ground and it's spotless and to me like that was an accurate representation of how little they tried this season like if there's mm-hmm. one moment that i could use an, as an example it would be the knife the bloodless knife the clean knife um yeah i don't know to go from one of the best suspense anime mystery horror whatever you want to categorize it as to one of the worst endings in probably anime history i mean it's just so disappointing it really is like I know we, we've been roasting it and all that stuff, but I am I am sad. I'm really sad to to see this outcome for Promise Neverland because, again, sure, maybe the manga, the second half wasn't that great, and maybe the second half, or so the, sorry, the second season of the anime wouldn't have been great either just if they stuck with the original story of the manga, but, like, at least try. Like, sometimes mm-hmm. you do get stories that aren't that great, but they're still enjoyable. You still want to watch the show or the anime at the end of the day because so much effort and love was putting into creating this this the show, this project. But here it's like the terrible writing coupled with the lack of effort and the lack of accountability, looking at you, episode 10, <laughs> um, just really, I think, soured everything. I feel like, you know, in terms of, you know, better adapting the story for this anime, one example I can think of of a show that kind of does this pretty well, although it kind of falters off in the later seasons, is like The Walking Dead. You say, like it, it, yeah, it follows the comics pretty closely, but then it'll deviate from certain points. And even though you know, I, I know like some comic readers weren't happy with that, like the show was still doing well, having taken these alternate routes for a story that still kind of runs parallel to the comics. I feel like they could have done that here. Like I said earlier the anime could have been like a course correction for any issues that people had with the manga story. Um, But yeah, we, we got this, this train wreck and we will never unsee it. (laughs) I think what would probably be more interesting is a documentary about this troubled production, almost like the disaster artist. Although I'm sure anyone who was involved in this production does not want that to come to public fruition. And that brings us to our final thoughts for The Promised Neverland Season 2. How many this show is getting on Minerva's out of 10 would you give this? 
Wow, my nervous. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes. Um, I am pulling up my anime list because I actually do want to see what I rated it. Um, let's see here, folks. I gave was it Yakusoku, right? Let's mm-hmm. Scroll down to Yakusoku, Yakusoku no, no Neverland. Neverland. Um, I gave this. Oh shit! I saw a nine, and I'm like, I gave it a nine. No, that was <sighs> season one. I gave season one a nine. I gave season two a four. Um, so very big difference here for all of the reasons that we've shared throughout this podcast episode. And again, I'll just leave it at this. Season one was absolutely phenomenal. Season two could have been enjoyable still if they put the genuine effort into it. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the final product is almost always a direct reflection of the effort put into it, the care and, and the time put into it. And here, I mean, it's it's obvious, like, it just it all fell apart and no one wanted to care anymore no one wanted to be involved anymore and so it just it went downhill so so fast um it, it was a story that i was actually pretty interested in i wanted to see what happened with these characters after they made it you know past the wall and you know figuring that norman was going to come back i wanted to see how he you know coped with with everything outside of gracefield yada 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 like all these things that i think are still pretty interesting despite you know the story being not as captivating in the second half. Um, but yeah, we just, we didn't get that. And I'm, I'm really sad. So I'll just always remember season one for the amazing anime that it is. And I'll remember that season two exists, but I will be in denial for <laughs> for the rest of my life. But what what's your score on this? I would also give this four. This show is getting on Minerva's out of 10. And as you said previously, as I said previously as well, season one was fantastic. Like it had a level of suspense and excitement, almost like when I first watched Attack on Titan. So I was obviously really excited to see this season and was expecting that similar emotional tension and drama, almost like, again, when watching Attack on Titan or when watching The Walking Dead in its prime. What we got was a season that carried none of that weight and exponentially lost steam as it carried onward to the point where giving any more of my attention to it felt like a disservice in itself. And, you know, there are so many loose story threads that just don't get, end up getting tied together in the end here. And that just makes you wonder if it was even worth the trouble to theorize about what these threads could mean. Like, remember when Gilda was so worried about Emma's health and whether or not she would survive long enough to lead the gang? Remember when Mama had a sinister grin on her face when asked to capture the escaped children? Remember when Norman was coughing up blood and was probably going to die? And remember when Sanju still had hunger pains about consuming humans? None of that matters. None of that fucking (laughs) matters. Yeah. And I feel like we've been beating like a dead demon horse with how many complaints we've had about this show. So I think to continue would just serve me no better than this story has tried to serve me. So thank you, Promised Neverland. I promise to never again give you any more of my time. <laughs> just go watch season one. That's it. Just go watch season one. That's all. We'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. And just make up a headcanon after after season one. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That wraps up episode 32 of Strictly Anime. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on the anime that we review. 
You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. Fuck this shit. <laughs>